Corinthians, please, in chapter 6. 1 Corinthians in chapter 6. I would like to speak to you this evening under the title Disputes Among Believers. Disputes among believers. Not a nice topic to look at, but this is where we find ourselves as we go through uh, 1 Corinthians together. 1 Corinthians in chapter 6. We'll take time to read the first 11 verses this evening. This is the word of the Lord, and we read, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye are judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. It is so that there is not is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts this evening. Disputes among believers. There was once an ancient Greek script writer who in the course of one of his plays introduces a character who is seen to be looking at a map of the world and he asks the question to those around him, where is Greece? And in answer to the question, Greece is pointed out to him geographically on the map and he replies to them, well, there must be some kind of mistake because I cannot see any lawsuits going on. Lawsuits and going to the law were so prevalent in Greece at this time in history in the Greek Empire. Corinth, of course, was in Greece and it was known for and had a reputation for people going to court for any reason, taking their friends, taking their relatives, taking their neighbours, taking their countrymen to the law over the most trivial things, things that didn't really matter, but they always dragged them to the law courts to sort them out there. That's the context of where this passage is written. And of course, I think you would agree with me that the United Kingdom is getting pretty similar today. 
We seem to be a people that go to the courts quicker than we have ever done before and looking for compensation for that, this and that of things that happened to us or more, most likely a lot of people, things that haven't happened to us, but we'll chance our arm anyway. But you must remember that this letter, it was written to the church, not Corinth as a whole, but to the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth. And you would like to think that the church would be different, that they wouldn't have integrated into their lifestyle the way of the world outside. Of course, the sad fact is, and as we have found as we've gone through these first five chapters in 1 Corinthians, that this was their biggest problem, perhaps, that they were, they were mirroring the world outside the church. In fact, we remember that Paul, he called them carnal. And yes, they were saved. But they just lived like the world around them. And the question that keeps on coming up through the book of 1 Corinthians as we go through, that we must ask our souls again this evening, are you, am I, a carnal Christian? Let's put that question in plainer terms. The way that you live your day-to-day -day life, does it look like someone who is deeply in love with the Lord Jesus? Or do you just blend in well with the world? Paul, he spoke to the Corinthian church and he says, you're carnal. Sadly, this is true of many of God's people in our land today. I wonder, is it true of you? You see, the purpose of the church isn't to become like society around us, but rather to change the society in which we have been placed. The Lord Jesus teaches us that we're to be salt, that we are to be light. That, that we're here in the world to change the world. There's no doubt about it. The Bible is an extremely practical book. And here again in chapter 6 this evening, we come, in my opinion, to the most important statement the Bible has on the whole matter of legal action and court situations in regard to Christian people. You may think to yourself, this is something, Peter, that will never happen. Two Christians would never take each other to court. Well, I know of a life situation today, and it nearly happened that two Christians brought themselves to court. This is real life. What we're dealing with tonight is really practical stuff. And even on a lower level, there are lessons for you and I that we can learn for our witness before unbelievers. The problem in the church of Corinth was that the Christians were suing each other. And the people were disputing with one another uh, to the point that they were taking their brothers and sisters in Christ to court. And you'll notice at the end of verse 8, Paul writes, Ye do wrong and defraud and that your brethren. He says you're doing wrong and you're defrauding even your own brothers in Christ. And really, verse 6, I believe, holds the keys to this passage that we've looked at this evening. Brother goes to law with brothers, and that before unbelievers. Here Paul is saying believers are disputing with each other, but it's being made public. Outside of the church, in front of unbelievers, and really here is a community of Christians in Corinth fighting with, fighting with each other and asking the non-Christian world to play referee with their problem. John MacArthur, when preaching on this passage, said, This is not unlike hanging your dirty laundry in the face of everybody. 
One thing that the true church of Christ is this. One thing that's true about the true church of Christ is this. We never publicize that we're perfect. But at times we certainly publicize our imperfections. And rather grossly too. You see there's three serious misunderstandings that Paul points out to the church in Corinth in these verses. And my prayer is that as we look at these three misunderstandings that we will gain an understanding of how to scripturally and spiritually deal with disputes among unbelievers. We have to be real. We are a group of sinners that are saved by grace and the sinful nature is still there and disputes will happen. But how do we deal with them spiritually? And how do we deal with them scripturally? Well, let's have a look at these misunderstandings that Paul points out. The first of them is this, that they misunderstood the rank of the church. They misunderstood the rank of the church. Really the fact that any believers who are in fellowship together at the local church would consider taking each other to court is an absolute disgrace. To the church. Look at verse 1. Of course it's a disgrace. Can you hear Paul's tone? Dare any of you. And the word dare there. It expresses the anger of Paul. At the Corinthian church. It shows how incensed he was. About this situation. How dare you. Go to law before the unjust. And before the saints. It's a disgrace. Says Paul to the church. It's a disgrace to the worth. Of the church. In these opening verses. Paul sets before us. uh, The wonderful dignity. or, Or worth of the church. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of Christ. It has great worth. You dear brother. You dear sister. You have great worth. Because you're part of the church. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the Lord Jesus. Who gives you your worth. You one day will judge with Christ. Have a look here. Paul says that the church is destined in the future to exercise rules of judgment. You have great worth as part of the church of Christ. You will judge the world and you will judge the angels. Look at verse 2. He says, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? The Bible teaches that there's coming a day where the saints of God will share with the Lord Jesus Christ a judgment on this earth. And we read about this over in the Gospel of Luke. The Lord Jesus is speaking in Luke chapter 19 and verse 17. Listen to what the Lord Jesus said. He says, And he said unto them, Well, thy good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thy authority over ten cities. One of these days, in the millennial reign of Christ, when Christ reigns on this earth, the Bible says that believers are going to share in authority with the Lord Jesus Christ. Someday, we are going to rule the world with Christ. We are going to be making decisions with Christ. Now, if we can do that someday, handling the supreme court of Christ and ruling over the world on a future day, it seems fairly apparent that we ought to be able to handle the local matters that go on while we're here. Surely, that's Paul's whole point here. That because of the ultimate design and character of the church, that it's going to be fitting to rule the world, it should be able to judge its own private matters. 
then he says in verse 3 that the saints are going to judge the angels. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? And he's making a similar point here. You know, the highest class of beings ever created are angels. And we're going to be exalted to the place someday that we will rule over angels. And we shall, as the verse says, judge angels. Now, if we're going to judge angels, says Paul, how much more the things that pertain to this life? I mean, if we're going to do that, I mean, don't you think we can take care of the petty things of this world? We will rule over and have charge of angels. It just says angels. There's different commentators have different opinions on what this actually means. There's some say it means that we'll rule over the fallen angels and we'll judge them as they're cast into hell. Well, that's not what this verse says. It says we will have rule over angels. So I believe that we will have rule over both those angels that are righteous, that are good angels, and also those that are damned. And that that's... I don't see the point in in fighting over this verse or saying who or what. It simply says angels. And when it says we will judge good angels, what I believe is that, that we will have rule over them, uh, that, that we, will, we will be above them when it comes to eternity. But also those angels that are damned, uh, who will be cast into the lake of fire with Satan and all the demons we will judge in that day too with Christ. We don't need to get into any more of that. The verse speaks for itself. Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? What is Paul's point? If we're going to judge this world, if we're going to judge angels, why are we going out to the courts of this world to settle, and to, to, to settle disputes that should be settled in the local church? It was a disgrace to the dignity of the church, the worth of the church. We have great worth. We're going to reign with Christ one day. Therefore, Paul says, sort it out in the local church fellowship. It was a disgrace to the dignity of the church. It was a disgrace to the witness of the church. It was a disgrace for the witness of the church. What is the witness of the church that Christ sets out? Well, I believe it's to live in unity. Look at verse 4. Paul says, If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, no, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren? You, you can sense again the sarcasm of Paul that comes right through this letter with these questions. Listen, there's nothing worse than God's in, in God's church that hinders the witness of God's church than when we begin to argue and dispute among each other and the outside world, the unbelievers look in and they see the inconsistencies among God's people and they want to do away and have nothing to do with the church. You see, the Bible says how good and how pleasant is it for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, when believers are fighting with one another, something has affected the unity in the fellowship. And just a side note, in case you get the wrong idea here when we're speaking about the courts, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, it's got absolutely nothing to do with criminal cases. 
It's nothing to do with criminal cases. It's to do with suing each other over petty things and bringing things into the court that don't need taken. If, if you're a rapist or you're a murderer or you're a child abuser or you're an extortionist, any sin any sin that you would name that is a criminal offence in the eyes of the law in the state of this land, the church will not shelter you. It will not. So, so we, they, these are petty things. These are things that are being taken to the court for suing. This is not criminal offences. Just imagine the believers going to an unsaved judge, perhaps, and, and maybe before an unsaved judge, all the dirty laundry of the church is brought out, all the animosity, all the unforgiveness, all the unchristlikeness is paraded before the bar of a lost judge, an unbelieving judge. Then just suppose a few days later, after that church has been to court, before that lost judge, just suppose that a visitor from this church goes soul winning one night and is knocking the doors around the Greens. Hi there, I'm from Greens Baptist Church. I've come down here to tell you about the Lord Jesus. Now you just tell me what kind of testimony that would be. Tell me how difficult it would be to lead that unsafe judge to the Lord Jesus Christ when he just witnessed in his own court believers from that fellowship who weren't able to live together as Christ teaches us. Listen, I'm pretty confident when I say I don't believe any of you in our fellowship plan on taking anyone to court anytime soon. However, there could be disputes. Maybe at the moment they're quiet disputes. But if they were to boil over and go public and the unsaved were to hear about them, what sort of witness would that be? Let me say to you today, if you have an issue with a bro another brother or sister in Christ, get it sorted privately, not publicly. Because there are unsaved people watching. And your public disagreement could do more damage than good. Get it sorted for the good of Christ's church. Get your disputes settled for the good of soul winning. Get your disputes settled for the good of the witness of the church. Because when unity among Christians is broken in any way, it is devastating to the testimony of the gospel. This undermines everything that we're trying to communicate because the Lord Jesus said, by your love, they'll know that you're my disciples. If you have a dispute with another child of God in the context of this local church, if you're struggling to settle it, read these verses again. When, when Christians go to court with one another, it's a disgrace to the church. But on a level that we can apply to ourselves tonight, any dispute among God's people is a disgrace to the church of Christ. It damages the worth of the church and it damages our witness. Now let me say this with fear and trepidation. Verse 5 says this. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, no, not one that shall be able to judge between brethren. God has placed elders in the setup of a local church for a reason. If you're someone and you're struggling in your dispute, and if it threatens the witness of this assembly and it isn't settled, while both Bill and I don't claim to be wise at all, 
I know as overseers of this fellowship, we have responsibility to point to Christ and seek God's wisdom in a situation like this. And never you hesitate to approach us to help, with God's help, to settle a dispute. That is our role that God has given to us. And I'm not saying that I'm wise, but I would seek the Lord's wisdom in any situation. That's the structure of a local church. That's what God has put in place. The people in Corinth, they, they misunderstood the rank of the church. I want you also to see that, that they misunderstood the right attitude of the Christian. Look now at verse 7. This is a lesson on humility, if ever there was one. And I must confess, this is hard to live out. And I need to let the Spirit of God work in my soul on this one. Look at verse 7. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud and not your brethren. What's Paul saying in these verses? Just accept the wrong, says Paul. Sorry, what did you say, Paul? Someone's wronged me, and you just want me to accept it? He says, well, why don't you rather just accept the wrongdoing, take it on the chin? Why don't you rather just suffer and let yourself be defrauded? When a believer takes another believer to court or in a heated ongoing debate in the church, it's a defeat to the fellowship of the church because the believer is not walking in love or in the spirit of forgiveness. That's what Paul is teaching. Now, it is true that believers can reconcile their problems. I'm not saying that you should be a soft touch and just rule over. But when it comes to the whole fellowship becoming involved and people taking sides, quite often that splits a local church, ruins the witness, and God forbid that that would ever happen in Grange Baptist in future days. The Lord Jesus has given a very specific procedure to follow in helping believers in Matthew 18. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be with you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Let's get back to verse 7 here, though. Here's the point. If someone has wronged you and you can't forgive for the sake of the fellowship, then you have a serious lack of understanding of what Christ did for you at the cross. And you certainly misunderstand the right attitude of a Christian. What if the Lord Jesus had acted like that? I mean, what if the Lord Jesus had arrived up there at Calvary and said, I just decided I'm not going to die. This crowd, they've mistreated me. They've been unkind to me. They don't deserve me dying on the cross for them. They, they've wronged me. I've been given a corrupt trial. And I've been deserted by my own disciples. I refuse to die. Well, sometimes that's the way God's children act when we refuse to forgive one another. You see, the Bible says it would be better for us to suffer wrong 
It would be better for us to be defrauded rather than to de- rather than have a defeat for the fellowship of the church and hurt the testimony of the church. Boy, these are humbling lessons. Paul says in verse 8, you do wrong and you defraud and that your brethren. He's basically, say, basically saying here that if you can't work out your problem with another believer, then just you go ahead and take it in the chin. Just you accept that you've been wronged and move on and forget. You know, where I remember I was talking to Pastor John Taylor about a situation where it was clear that one Christian was in the right and the other one had done wrong. And really, the way it had been settled meant that the person who had done wrong walked away in the better position. I remember as John's assistant questioning him and, and thinking about it, and I heard him say this on that occasion, and I heard him say it on many other occasions as well. Do you know what he said? He leant over and he says, Peter, the Lord knows all about it. The Lord knows all about it. And there's a day coming when all wrongs will be made right. And maybe you're doing a brother or a sister wrong, and you think no one else knows about it. Well, this is what I say to you. The Lord sees you. And the Lord knows all about it. What is the principle then that the Christian operates on? What is the right attitude of a Christian? It's an attitude of compassion. And it's an attitude of forgiveness. I'm not trying to protect my property. I'm trying to protect my relationship with God. So therefore I do what's right before him. Paul says to the Corinthians, if you go to court, you're not understanding the rank of the church, the position you have, the privileged position as part of the church of Christ. You're not understanding the right attitude of the Christian, which is forgiveness, which is love. There's no reason to ever go to court to gain something back. If you need something and it's been taken from you by a child of God, trust me, the Lord, he will forgive to you tenfold over, maybe not that, but his blessings will pour upon upon you because he's with you just you trust the Lord he did say after all that he'll supply all our needs according to his riches and glory the people in Corinth misunderstood the rank of the church the people in Corinth misunderstood the right attitude of the Christian finally this evening they they misunderstood their relationship with the world look at verse 9 know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The people in the church in Corinth had once been steeped in the things of the world. And Paul reminds them of what they used to be, what their relationship with the world used to be, and what it is now. We don't have time to go through that list this evening, but look at Paul's words in verse 9. He says, be not deceived. What does he mean? As you read that list, if you were actually to go through that list and think about the sins that are listed in that list, 
It's disgusting. These are filthy, filthy sinners. These people were the worst of the worst. They were the lowest of the low. They were the worst sinners. And these things, if you actually look into them, these sins, they're just not palatable. They're not comfortable even to read that list. Before they were saved, they were filthy sinners. But Paul gave out the list anyway, an unpalatable list. And here's the tremendous thing. Paul says that the nature of their cleansing from sin, it needed to be understood because Paul says in verse 11, such were some of you. You were some of these people in this unpalatable list. Such were some of you. Literally, these things were some of you. You used to be part of the world. You were steeped in sin. When I came in and found you in Corinth and led you to Christ, and Christ lifted you out of this, and all you needed was the gospel. That's all you needed. And the gospel was the power of God unto salvation. Think of it. We old man, probably balding with a crooked nose, walks into the city of Corinth. And he says, I'm determined to do nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he turned Corinth upside down with the Lord's help. It's amazing grace how sweet the sound. Look at the lovely reminder Paul gives them in verse 11. What is your relationship with this world, dear believer? Ye are washed. Christ has washed you with his own blood. He has washed these Corinthians with his own blood and washed them in the water of sanctification because they are new creatures in Christ Jesus and they're born again. He goes on, you're washed, you're sanctified, but you're justified and they're sanctified. In other words, they're they're becoming and should be becoming more Christ-like every day and the life of God should be seen in the life of the, the Christian more and more every day. That's the part that the world sees, how you live, isn't it? And that's the point of this entire passage. That's the point that Paul is making. If you're forgiven by Christ, if you're washed by his blood, and you're arguing over the stupidest, smallest things possible, and you're running it around in the face of unbelievers, well, you're a disgrace. When you think Christ has forgiven you, and and when you think of how Christ has forgiven you, therefore you need to forgive your brother or sister in Christ. I wonder, is there someone here tonight and you have something against a brother? Maybe someone has something against you. Can you not see what Christ has done for you here, washed? You're forgiven by him. And for Christ's sake, forgive your brother or sister. Harry Ironside, let me finish with this, tells a story of when he was a wee lad. He belonged to an assembly in the city of Toronto. There was a bit of strife and trouble in the assembly and they followed these principles of getting together and sorting the thing out. And his mother took him along to that particular meeting. And he says as a little boy, he says little boys have big ears. He remembered absolutely everything about that meeting. He was horrified, he says, as he saw two men that he esteemed as men of God. They'd been brought by his mother, they brought up by his mother to respect these men. And yet they were so cruel and hateful to one another in front of them. 
And he said all he could remember was one man springing to his feet with clenched fists and saying, I'll not put up with this. I've put up with a great deal, but I'm not letting you get this one over me. I know my rights. There was an old Scotsman, brother in the meeting, who was hard of hearing and he cupped his ear. He says, brother, I didn't catch that one. Could you say that again? What was that? The man said, I know my rights. And the older brother looked him eyeball to eyeball. He says, do you really mean that? He says, what are your rights? If you had rights, you'd be in hell. Wasn't he right? If the Lord Jesus had rights over you and I, we'd be in hell. But the Lord Jesus didn't come for his rights. He came for our wrongs. And he got wrongs done to him. Harry Ironside said that the man looked at the old Scotsman transfixed for a few seconds. Then he began to break down and tears rolled down his face. He says, I've been wrong, brother. You judge this whatever way you will. He sat down, he put his head in his hands and in three minutes the problem was sorted. You are washed. And as God has forgiven you, Forgive one another. Isn't it wonderful to be washed? To be cleansed? Imagine if you'd committed one of those horrible sins in that list. Yet you're able to be said, I'm washed by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah, it's been done for each one of us sitting in this meeting. Praise God, we are forgiven. Surely as believers, when we think of the forgiveness that Christ has shown to us, Surely, to put it in our language, we can take one on the chin. And for the sake of the church, and for the sake of our witness, we can stand up, forgive, show compassion, and move on. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow in your presence this evening and we've been reminded of how much mercy, forgiveness, grace that you've shown to us. For Father, if we were to stand in our disputes with brothers and sisters in Christ, crying out, I know my rights, how we're reminded by that illustration from our sight that we rightfully would be in a lost eternity. And yet, Father, you have saved us and you've so graciously brought us here to the Grange and you've given us each other as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage one another and sharpen one another. We thank you, Father, for the local church. We, we thank you, Father, for uh, these meetings that we can come to and read your word and listen to it. And although at times it's it's difficult because it shows up our sin and we look in the mirror of God's word and we have to look at ourselves. Father, we pray that as we look at ourselves tonight, that you would forgive us for our misunderstandings of who we are before you. That you would give us great understanding of what you have done for us and how we can get along in unity. Father, we bless you, we praise you that indeed, you love us with an everlasting love. We praise you and bless you 
for each brother and sister here tonight. We thank you, Father, for our fellowship. We thank you, Father, that Christ can be seen in so many of our fellowship. And we pray, Father, as we go out into this year, that you would save us from disputes, that you would save us from arguments of the petty things. For, Father, we realize someday you will give us great responsibility as your church, as we judge this world and the angels. So, Father, we pray for your help in the daily matters. We pray for your help and your wisdom in all that we do. And Father, if there is someone here this evening who has felt wrong, wrong has been done to them, Father, help them to forgive. Help them, as it were, to take it on the chin, to show compassion, even that compassion that Christ has shown to us, and the great forgiveness that we have known in our salvation. Father, bless us now as we go to prayer. Give us the help that we need. And we ask this all in the Saviour's name. Amen. Amen.